It's a peaceful protest. We walking, raising awareness. Some of the injustice that we've been seeing is not okay. And as a young person, you gotta you gotta listen to our perspective. Our voices need to be heard. People are gonna look back. Our kids are gonna look back at this and say, "You were a part of that." I got a grandfather that marched next to Dr. King in the '60s, and he was amazing. He would be proud to see us all here. We gotta keep pushing forward. Sports are like the reward of a functional society. Sirius XM Sports presents Forward Progress, a weekly open conversation on race and sports in America. Here are your hosts, Jason Jackson and Kirk Morrison. Another week, another gathering, and thankful to be with you with Kirk Morrison. I am Jason Jackson, and you get to hit lead off today, Kirk, all right? A little bit later, uh, the great Doug Williams will join us. I'm excited about your conversation with him. I literally just had a 18-hole baptism with my youngest son on Doug Williams. I happen to have a Doug Williams commemorative uh, ball repair and uh, combined with a, a ball marker in my bag. And my youngest son goes around sticking his tee in the ground like it's his ball marker. I'm like, we, we ain't building railroads, son. We're out here marking balls, so you need the proper tools. And so we talked for four hours. Wow. I didn't know I had that much in me mm-hmm. about Doug Williams and, and black quarterbacks. And yeah. we're so excited. I understand next week, Warren Moon is yeah. uh, scheduled to be one of our guests. But anyway, I look forward to your conversation with him. Uh, next segment, we'll uh, hear a wonderful conversation from ACC Radio, the head coach of the Florida State Seminoles. Usually doesn't come out of my mouth. I'm married to a, a hurricane employee, so <laughs> Seminoles don't just come out of my mouth regularly. But I love Leonard Hamilton. Mm-hmm. And I've, I've been around him for a long, long time. The first time I came to Miami, he was the head coach uh, at the Wright School. Those were back in the Big East days. And uh, and really, really enjoyed him and obviously covered him when he made his way to the association to make that bag. And then uh, been cheering against him uh, ever since, uh, uh, but, but enjoying his view of things. And boy, on ACC radio, the coach Hamilton dropped some stuff. So we'll get to that next segment. But first, week one in the National. Yeah. Football we saw the slogans. Mm-hmm. Uh, we saw different teams have different approaches. I saw the Miami Dolphins did not come out. Correct. I saw um, my quarterback uh, with a little bit of an end around. That would be Baker Mayfield. Um, let's play better on Thursday. And then <laughs> uh, I'm sure you saw other things. Walk me through uh, your feelings and observations. Um, well, first of all, I do want to give uh, a ton of credit to the National Football League, the NFL, um, its players, its staff. Because remember this, Jason, as much as we're talking about social justice and equality in our country, we were still fighting a pandemic. And I think that a lot of people didn't think that the NFL was going to be possible uh, for 2020. It was a lot of you know criticism, skeptics. And for them just to be able to have the protocols and follow the lead of the NBA, I thought that it, 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 it was a success. So that was the first part to it. But the success came from watching the model of the NBA, Major League Baseball, just from the COVID concerns. Mm-hmm. But then I think also, too, watching the way that the NBA integrated social justice, uh, equality, the voice of the players onto the court, onto the uniforms, onto uh, just the production of the entire game to a point where 
it didn't take away from the action on the floor. Like I love the NBA and watching what they were able to do in the bubble. I thought the NFL, they took notes. I mean, the, the guinea pig was the <laughs> NBA and they looked, they said, okay, so this is what works. Okay. This is what we can do. And week one throughout the national football league, I saw a conscious effort by the NFL, which I, Jason, I played the game. Like I was in the NFL. I could never imagine what the NFL did this past weekend, week one, seeing messages of in racism on goalposts clearly visible to not only the viewer, uh, but to everyone around watching and seeing the words in the end zone about equality. And it takes all of us, those slogans being preached, making sure that the television networks, I thought to make coverage of the national anthems, guys who are protesting letting those 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 faces be seen those voices be heard i thought it was powerful because a lot of guys decided to stand some decided to kneel but they showed the players who understood some of the white counterparts putting a shoulder on a guy who may have been kneeling right like that to me is powerful they're saying hey i want to stand for the anthem but I understand what you're going through and I'm giving you uh, my hand of approval. You get what I'm saying? Like, that's the part that really connectivity. got me. Yeah, absolutely. yeah, the connectivity. Um, but I- I'll rewind because I remember when I got into the league in 2005, Jason, and even going back to my college career at San Diego State, as, an, as, as a football player, the national anthem was always played while we were in the locker room. Like I was in the locker room, we in the locker room chilling and I can hear the anthem in my ear. I can hear it and, you know, kind of over the headphones as I'm getting psyched up, ready to play in the game and things like that. But you were never on the field for the national anthem. That was not that was not the case. And I remember when the NFL started that, because all I remember was you heard the anthem. And then after the anthem was over, you know, if you're the away team, you come out and everybody's boo. They're booing you like crazy. And then here come the home team and everybody's excited. And then we have the, the, the coin toss and it was kickoff. And I forget, I want to say, Jason, it was maybe about 07, 2007, 2008, maybe ish around that area where the NFL decided to say we want the players out for the national anthem. And they wanted to make more of a uh, effort for to honor the troops, to honor our military. And, and have more of a visual presence for the military. And I remember that we had to be out there for the national anthem, which for me, I, um, I, you know, you stood for the anthem because that's what I was taught in middle school, elementary, you pledge allegiance hand over your right, you know, heart, heart, right hand over your heart. Sure. And that's where we were programmed. And now to, we fast forward to 2020 and now it's just like, I think there's the freedoms of our country now that people are starting to realize that what we thought what we were supposed to do or what was the norm, you actually have a decision on how you want to go about, whether it's standing for the anthem, whether it's staying inside uh, or in the, inside the locker room, whether it's tuning it out, whatever you want to do. Mm-hmm. But I think overall, what I saw from just the week one of the NFL was that it never took away It never was a distraction. It was you made your uh, protests or you did what you wanted to do. And then the game started. And then that was that. Right. So I thought for week one, 
I give kudos to the NFL, and we'll see where does that go uh, as the season goes along. The feeling that I had was very similar to yours, that, that I was – I knew it was all coming. I mean, I'm reading all of these reports. I, I see where the commissioner is uh, correcting his, or attempting to correct his place uh, in history. Uh, but that's that's a tough 32 to corral, brother. Right? That's these commissioners have their hands full because they they it's um, part of their job. I'm not letting them off the hook. I don't want it to sound like that. Right. But but they have to get. When the union's barking in one ear, uh, they got all these 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 team owners and ownership groups. Right, I like to call them governors over in the NBA now. <laughs> um, that that probably have certain feelings that do not align. Right, but what I'm hoping and what I'm hearing are men and women growing, yes. and I'm encouraging that because when you hear Black Lives Matter, don't get caught up in the rhetoric about fundraising and who's connected to that. It's a philosophy, a personal philosophy. I'm watching at a disproportionate rate. Critical phrase, right? Yes, white men and white women deal with police brutality. Yes, but at a disproportionate rate, particularly black men, black people uh, deal with it in a way that has led to death. I mean, I, I pause because I think that needs it. And so if you can get these high net wealth individuals to this other space where this has nothing to do with your political leanings, this has nothing to do with your financial interests, it has everything to do with your humanity. And oh, by the way, you have some business partners that have their name on your buildings or on your lounges or on your parking facilities uh, that have customers that, that look like Jax and Kirk. <laughs> and right. that's important to them, hopefully holistically, hopefully on a peer level, but surely to their bottom line. And one thing I've learned about our people, we will <laughs> yeah. spend our money. Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. <laughs> All right. Now we need to learn some other things about our money, but we will spend it. And that spending power has power itself. And some of that has driven a lot of these conversations um, in a space where I'm sure people are uncomfortable. So whatever discomfort might have been in play, I feel like um, altruistically or because of the bottom line, I'm not entirely sure. Who am I to decide what's inside of a person? But everything looked and felt right. What are your long-term expectations? I think long-term, I think that the NFL will continue figuring it out. Uh, the only things that I want to see from week one and moving forward was that there was a slight dip in the ratings, right? Mm. A slight dip, not a big dip, um, but it was uh, where, you know, a lot of people always say it could be because of politics. Um, it, it could be because of COVID. You know, a lot of time, you know, the, a lot of people like to go and meet at a bar or meet places and watch the games and you know that's been taken away from us no gatherings of more than 10 to 15 people in certain places uh, I, I say that because now the nfl must figure out how can they get the rise in ratings 
and what must they do? Uh, is it because of too much social justice to pushing it on people, right? Pushing that on. So that that's what I want to see in week two, because week right. one was great, but week right. there's two, some games that were off the charts. Yes. Sunday night wasn't what it usually is. Thursday night wasn't what it usually is. Correct. Um, if I'm not mistaken, um, what game was it that was off the charts? Wasn't it? Yeah, uh, it was uh, the Buccaneers and the Saints. Buc Saints, right? Yeah. Like just off the rails because it was it was a it was it was two quarterbacks who everyone knew. If I say Breeze and Brady, we like, oh, okay, we know what that looks like. Yeah. And so Thursday night this week got no shot. I'll take it. Yeah. Uh, the yeah. Ohio Cup got no shot. <laughs> You got to love football for Thursday. <laughs> you or love you're from football. Cleveland or Cincinnati, Absolutely. and I grew up in both. I mean, you so can I'm, you can try to it. hype it up all you want, Jason. You go, oh, yeah. it's two Heisman Trophy winners. The number that. one pick. Yeah. Right, exactly. But, you know, obviously. Um, I know and, and, but by the way, there was some of this trending last season. Correct. There was a little bit of a dip. And here's what I'll do. There's two layers of this, for me at least. Mm -hmm. One, the other sports are coming. Yes. This is a hold that has been here for a while, mm -hmm. right? Yep. And the other sports are coming. The NHL, MLB, NBA all used to kind of scoot out of the way, right? right. On, yeah. on on Monday and, and and now Thursday and of course Sunday. Right. I've noticed over the last couple of years, there's a hell of a lot more NBA games on NFL Sundays, and I don't like it. Right. Yeah. I want to watch games. <laughs> well, I but, think the NBA, yeah, the NBA will get it right. Now, I know that game two will be uh, for the Miami Heat and Boston Celtics, which I think is going to be a great series already. That's Thursday but, night. Yeah. So, look, I. That's where I want to see because the NFL has got competition to it. I want people to realize that, that the competition because of the pandemic has forced us to now have a full plate almost every day of the week, Friday, Everybody's Saturday, playing. Sunday. And so that can contribute to the ratings. I don't want people to feel like because of the what the NFL is doing in terms of uh, of, of its stance on social justice now that that we want that people should just turn it off. Like, no, make sure you're listening. Make sure you understand and make sure that the players are you're listening to what they have to say right because their voice it still matters i don't care if your team lost i don't care if your team won you got to make sure that we're listening to your players and and i say that because i want to congratulate as well naomi osaka who won the women's us open oh, last week and absolutely um and just uh, her voice and in in the face of not only as um you know, as a black woman, obviously she, um, you know, talks about her heritage and being a black woman as well. Uh, but also just her having that message each and every time that she was out there, Jason, like name, wearing her name on every mask, right? Yeah. And like, she's also fighting a fight for equality just for women. You get what I'm right. saying? To have women's sports. So she's kind of doing the, uh, on both sides. So she's talking about uh, her black heritage, but then she's also talking about women and the equality of that. So that's what I'm saying. When we have a full plate, it's going to know you can't hide anymore, right? It, it was once where all oh, the NFL is doing, okay, let's watch baseball. But now you're watching baseball and they got, well, let's watch the NBA. Well, you're looking at people with the names on the back. Okay, well, let's just watch the U.S. Open. Well, the U.S. Open champion now is. So I, I'm just saying that now when we talk about this show, Forward Progress, I can't believe the progress, Jason, where we're at right now when it comes to sports and being able to highlight what, to me, like I said, 10 years ago, we would never, ever see anything like this. Doug Williams joins us a little bit later on the program, the first African-American quarterback to win the Super Bowl.
Oh, mm-hmm. uh, we, we gotta we gotta wait till he gets out of practice. All right, he's, that, <laughs> right. Man, that man's coaching up kids, man. Yeah. So uh, we'll talk with him a little bit later. First conversation with him, but we'll take a quick break. When we come back, our friends at ACC Radio are good enough to share with us a wonderful lesson from the men's head basketball coach Leonard Hamilton. Forward progress, Kirk and Jacks coming right back. You're listening to Forward Progress on Sirius XM Radio. We continue here on Forward Progress, Kirk Morris and Jason Jackson. If you missed it, I'm glad you're here with us because on ACC Radio, Coach Hamilton, men's basketball coach at Florida State, was asked a very reasonable and poignant question. Here's the question. Enjoy the answer. If your players came to you the day before a game and said, Coach, we're going to go out there, but we're not going to play. We want to make a statement here in support of, of a movement, the, the movement towards racial, racial justice. What would your response to something like that be? Chris, my response initially, and I'll, I'll answer that honestly as possible. I end up, I'm almost getting tired of responding to the what if first. I, I, I'm, it's becoming very irritating that I am always responding much more to the, the way people are protesting or exercising their emotions as to what they consider injustice as opposed to the reasons why people are protesting in the, in the first place. In other words, we always talking about the riots, the protests, the demonstrations, and the way people are expressing their displeasure with the social injustice, and nobody is really talking about the reason why they are protesting in the first place. And, and I mean, there's a history here that goes all the way back into to slavery, and to uh, freedom, and to voting rights, and to health care, and to job opportunities. And what has happened, Chris, there's such a disconnect in the educational information that's been relayed to us. In, in your educational process, you probably know more about the three shifts that came over from Europe than you know about slavery and the injustice that were going on and, and what happened during that whole period. You probably can tell me the three shifts that came over, but you don't know anything about the massacre in Wilmington. You don't know anything about the massacre in Florida, or, or I didn't even know. Uh, I was in Oklahoma for four years, and I didn't know anything at all about the massacre at Black Wall Street. And so I didn't know anything about the massacre. I grew up in North Carolina for 18 years, and I didn't know anything about the massacre uh, that happened in Wilmington. So that's part of our history as well. So in, in reality, you have some people that don't really even know why people are responding the way they have. And when you go back and really, really think about it, there's such a disconnect that the only way we're going to deal with this is that we have a mandated national conversation that's reasonable and sensible with, with, with the intentions of trying to find out what's going on. We know we can put somebody on the moon and we can't figure out how to get along. That doesn't make any sense, Chris. I believe we got good people in this world. I believe we got, we got people who care about one another. But we have such a disconnect 
where we don't understand who we are and how much we all bring to the table. I mean, so, so it, it's, it's, to me, I'm always dealing with the demonstrations and the method, but we got to come together and just have some legitimate conversation. If you remember correctly, I believe it was 1960, it was 64, 68, of the Kerner Commission, when there was a government-mandated study with the intentions of wanting to see why is it, where, where did all this start? What can we do to resolve this we would all can have a piece of the American pie? Well, that got shelved. I think if we can go back and come up with some way where we can just communicate. I mean, and I, I don't think all this is necessary. I see so many angry people all over the place. And we in a we in a bad way, Chris. The right now, I don't like the direction we're going. Um, now, to answer your question as far as what I do for my players, to be very honest with you, we communicate about these issues all the time. I don't expect any surprises. We talk about it. We, we, we go in behind closed doors or we go on a, a Zoom and we peel the onion back and we talk about it like it is. You know, we don't try to hide anything. We don't try to force them into taking one side or the other, but we try to educate them where we can, we, we can do things that, that's part of the solution and not necessarily part of the problem. A lot of things we talk about is personal and we answer questions and we don't, we don't hide from it. And we don't get caught up in the emotion part of it. We try to just deal with the facts. And I think our kids are well adverse uh, uh, in, 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 in the movement that's going on. And hopefully, you know, that we can all come to some way that we can get along and communicate and make this thing work for everybody. Right now, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling some kind of way that, that we, we, we can't seem to develop the, the, the ability to respect each other in a positive way and let's all see whether or not we can, you know, figure a way out a way to make this work for everybody. So Kurt, uh, I thought Coach Hamilton was headed in a different direction first. In the first minute where he's worn out. Right. I'm like, oh no, Here we, are we gonna get grumpy old black guy? Are we about <laughs> to get that? He was Professor yeah. Hamilton. And we forget that about coaches sometimes, particularly at the collegiate level. Those are instructors. Yeah. Those are, those are teachers. And then when you have the soul of a college campus underneath your feet every single day, you, you have a little bit of a different tone. And he gave a history lesson and, and admitted that he needed one. Yeah. And it's interesting because there is this constant reaction um, from, from, particularly white folks and, and other folks that are not fully wrapped around what we're actually talking about in this space of racial inequality and injustice that will try to divert the focus. I don't think the questioner was in that direction. No, not at all. Just coaches right. just hit the ceiling in. Why are we focused on the reaction and not the actions? Yeah, I, I think that's the, the bigger question, right? Everyone's always talking about, like Coach said, the what if, the what if. It's like, I'm tired of the what if. 
everybody. Like, let's let's talk about what's been going on in our country's history, uh, the history that a lot of us who went to different schools, it was never talked about. Yes, we would have Black History Month assemblies and we would learn about certain aspects of our history. But I think to Coach's point, um, I will be honest, I never knew about what happened in Tulsa, right, until recent recent years for me, um, because doing my college football broadcast, I actually went to Tulsa and and doing my history on the football program. I was looking at the city's history and realized what had happened there for black Americans. And I scratched my head and said, wow, this was never taught to me, Jason. Like it really, it was never taught to me. Right. You know, when you think about a lot of things that we uh, learned about in school and elementary school, like you, you yeah, let me do it for coach real quick, by the way, the yeah. Nina, the painter and the Santa Maria. Right. <laughs> yes, I do know them, but we did have to dig in about Rosewood and Correct. Tulsa. And, and by the way, see those movies that matter of fact, Rosewood, um, yes. a painful, but poignant film about the massacre in North Florida about, uh, this town that had become super self-sufficient uh, as a full black town. And then shockingly, if you watch HBO's new rendition of Watchmen, which is a, um, I believe a DC comic. Correct. Um, you, it's wrapped around uh, in many ways, this, this, this time continuum from the massacre in Tulsa oh, right. and connecting it to modern day. So if people want to, I know a lot of people use movies now to educate. Yeah, right. I want to help. I want to help. Right. Go ahead. Your thought. No, truly. I mean, I think that's um, where people can find the um, sort of the understanding, right? Uh, I've said this before. People always ask me, what can, if I'm a white American or white or uh, not of color, how can I learn? How can I understand? And I say, well, you have to do the research. And just as much as I tell you to do the research, I have to do the research myself and learn even more so that I can educate you on going out and reading about this, of what's been going on in the country and why people have feelings um, that they do. Um, a lot of times we all know this, Jason, I know you probably got this from your family that was kind of brought down to you uh, from your ancestors and grandparents and mom and dad, because it, it, it's taught through generations. Yeah. And so for me, generations have always taught me, hey, don't do this. You better sit down and do this and listen to your, this and and don't go out after the, at, at night. And you better fear. be home before the yeah bef before the streetlights come on. You better be home because that was the fear, like you mentioned, for many, many years. Um, I, I really, and this is my one time to tell everybody that I'm a member of Kappa Alpha Psi Fraternity Incorporated, which is, you know, founded at a historical, uh, is it one of the nine historical black um, fraternities and sororities that I learned a lot of my history, black history, through pledging for a fraternity and learning about, about that, that fraternity, yeah. about some of the things that, you know, African-Americans had to go through on college campuses and to be accepted. And without that knowledge of joining the group, I would have never known just what it was like. People think that we live in this live in this world of cell phones and computers and just technology where back then there was no technology. One of the things I learned, Jason, is that if someone said, hey, we're going to meet at two o'clock, you know, at the um, at the clock tower, 
And if one person was missing, the whole group had to go find that person. There was no text message to say, hey, where are you at? What are you doing? It right. was you're there at two o'clock. If you're not there, we're all going to go look for you because that's the way that things worked in the early 1900s. Right. And so I just bring all of that up because I think Leonard Hamilton um, just basically uh, just preaching to everyone to make sure they listen up and understand the history of why things are sort of the way they are today. I love this uh, relationship we have across uh, Sirius XM Sports. We thank uh, ACC Radio for extending the, that, that great interview and those thoughts from Coach Hamilton. Uh, we take a quick break. When we come back, Kirk and Doug. Oh, I love it. <laughs> These football heads going head to head. Doug Williams with us here on Forward Progress. It's Morrison and Jackson on Sirius XM. We now return to Forward Progress. Back here on Forward Progress, Kirk Morrison here. And uh, our next guest, I'm so humble to have this man on because when you think about the quarterback position, uh, especially when you think about black quarterbacks, African-American quarterbacks, uh, his name always rises to the top. He is a Super Bowl champion. He is a Super Bowl MVP, one of the great quarterbacks of the game. He is Doug Williams, the senior vice president of player development for the Washington football team. Um, and Doug, man, thank you for your time. Uh, we're going to jump right into this because the question I would love to know from you is basically when you think back to winning the Super Bowl, and being the first black quarterback to do that, uh, just what came to mind when you were lifting that trophy up back when you won Super Bowl Twenty Two? Well, you know, number one, it was, that was a um, historical day to, to get an opportunity to do that. But but I can tell you, after the game and walking off the field and being able to put my hand on that trophy, uh, so many things went through my mind as to how you got there. Right. You know, James Harris and I, we used to always say that. The both of us traveled roads that was less traveled, Correct. you know, because we weren't always given um, the credit or the opportunity of what we did. And, and, and people say, you know, we can't do this. You can't do that. And we all know, like, the day is so much different than, than yesteryears. And to be able to walk on the field uh, in 1988, playing the Super Bowl for the first time as a black man, I think that in itself, um, you know, rang volume. And, and mm -hmm. you know, it's hard for me to even think about it sometimes because I always figured that it could have been somebody else. And fortunately, you know, it was me. If it had been Warren Moon, if it had been Randall, whoever, that would have gotten that opportunity. I probably wouldn't have been as happy as I am today. It just so happened, you know, with me and my family and everything, uh, like my daughter say, I got a 37 year old daughter just five years ago she told me she she didn't realize my daddy was a legend and that's a good thing because I'm your kids and right. you want to look at you as, as daddy not as a legend and you just try to be as humble as you possibly can and uh, that's what I've always been but I'm grateful to have had that opportunity uh, to play in that Super Bowl you know, Doug, I think a lot of people forget that you're a first-round quarterback of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, pick number 17 overall, <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and coming out of Grambling State. And for people in the black community, we know Grambling State, one of the historical black colleges that you already know, uh, that whether it's the band, the football program. And I think about when you first came into the league, could you kind of remember um, some of the challenges that you may have faced just being a black quarterback and being sort of the face of a franchise, especially the Tampa Bay Buccaneers at the time? 
Yeah, you're talking about Deep South. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, early on, uh, number one, um, I didn't come to camp the first week. I held out to try to get a better contract. And I think uh, from that day on, you realize that you probably weren't going to get treated like other people got treated. And uh, I can remember telling my agent who represented Joe Namath at the time, Jimmy Walsh, you know, I had set out a week and I had to sit down and think about this thing where, you know, I've been playing football most of my uh, uh, young life and I play free. And I say, well, look, look, let's just do the contract and, and take what they give it and, and let's go from there. So I came to camp a week late and fortunately Joe Gibbs, who was, who was there my rookie year, and I got in late and my quarterback coach, uh, the first day of practice, you know, I'm just getting there. I don't really know the playbook, but just going through drills and things like that. And um, he hollered at me oh, right off the bat. You know, I come from, from a school like Grambling who, you know, all my coaches were black, but they, they treated you like you were somebody. And and to get hollered, uh, Bill Nelson, bless his soul, you know, he just screamed at me, telling me what I was doing wrong. And Joe Gibbs ran 100 yards down the field and got in his face and he told him, say, don't holler at him now one more time. He just got here. <laughs> and from that day on, you know, I went home with Joe Gibbs doing that training camp every night to go through the playbook. Every night, Joe Gibbs, I went home, sat at his table with his two boys, JD, bless his soul, and Coy, and his wife, Pat. And I ate dinner with Joe Gibbs all through training camp because I went home with him. And you, you, you learn a lot early on. You know, and you realize that this is my college, this is business, and it's not going to be the same, and you got to be able to handle it. You know, one of the things I was um, that that brought me to uh, this show uh, is called Forward Progress, right? And we talk about the progress that we feel that not only African Americans and Blacks have made in sports, where now you're able to kind of be able to voice your opinion about what's going on in your own community. But it's kind of hard to now uh, think about when you first started in the league, being a black African-American quarterback, people looked at you differently. They judged you differently, right? And fast forward to week one of the 2020 NFL season, Doug, and there was 10 starting quarterbacks, black African-Americans, 10 quarterbacks that started in week one, and even one, especially the football team that you worked for, the Washington football team, and Dwayne Haskins. So when you think about the progress of the black quarterback in the NFL, from when you first started to looking at those 10 guys that started this past weekend in week one, how, first of all, how does that make you feel? But then also, too, the path that you set out and being one of the, I think the, uh, the, the, I will say patriarchs of, of the black quarterbacks in the NFL. Let me say this. First of all, I envy, I envy the guys today because the ability that they have to stand on their own platform, right? Go out and, 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 and protest and do the things that they're doing for social justice. Um, when I came out, I don't care who you were, what position you played, if you was black, you didn't have that liberty to, okay. to do that protest. And there's only a few guys that was able to do that. Uh, maybe a Jim Brown and Muhammad Ali, uh, people, and, 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 and Tommy Smith and those guys. But you see what happened to Tommy Smith in 1968. And it was hard for a black man to stand up and, and, and protest on what's right and what's wrong. Uh, even today, people look at it a little different, and we should be we should be past that. But it's a good feeling 
to wake up on Sunday morning knowing that 10 black quarterbacks are going to be starting in the National Football League. And and I think what that tells you was that 30% of the league, yeah. basically almost 30% of the league, uh, black quarterbacks. And then when you look at this thing realistically, and um, you put you put Brady and you put um, Breeze in there, uh, those guys going to be gone soon. Right. And, and these these black quarterbacks, those are some young guys. You know, <laughs> right. Um, Cam Newton might be the oldest one. He's old and he's what, 31? <laughs> 31, yeah. <laughs> so, no, hey, the greatest 43, he's 12 years older than Cam. <laughs> so, so what I'm saying to you, what, what this does too, it gives hope. Mm. It gives hope to a lot of other young black quarterbacks that are playing in the colleges that you can do this. You know, James Harris, we used to talk about this all the time. He said when he was growing up, you know, he used to dream about playing in the National Football League. And when he woke up, he realized it was a nightmare. <laughs> right. But, but it's not like that now for these young people. But I think also what has happened, uh, the mentality of this league has changed. And I say that from a standpoint of the good old boy. Not, not that all the good old boys are gone now. You got a couple of good old boys still here. Right. But I think they've gotten away from that part just because he's black. I don't want him playing or representing my team. You know, you got to understand, if you're the quarterback, you ought to face a team. And you, you're giving that guy a lot of visibility and authority to say, hey, you represent my team. I think we've gotten past a lot of that. And I think the coaches, the general managers, realize it's about who is the best player for this football team that's going to give us an opportunity. And I'm glad we we there. We still got work to do because we still talk about it. Once we stop talking about it, the work is done. And I don't know when that's going to happen. Uh, we're joined now by Super Bowl MVP and Super Bowl champion quarterback Doug Williams here on uh, Forward Progress, Kirk Morrison, Jason Jackson. Um, I think one of the unique things about you, Doug, is not that you're uh, a Super Bowl champion quarterback, but post-career, you've been in different aspects of the game, whether it was in coaching, scouting, uh, administration. I mean, you've done uh, so much outside of just being a player. And with that being said, when you think about the areas that you've been been involved in and you look at what's going on around just socially, right, the equality, social justice, what would be the message that you would preach to when you were coaching at Grambling, uh, listening to the players who want to have a voice but don't know how to speak? What would your message be to them about being heard and how to either protest or make people listen to what you have to say? Well, you say that if you if you can remember, I don't know if you remember when I left Grambling last time, the players did protest. Right, that's right. I remember that. Yeah, <laughs> but that was because they they didn't know how to. <laughs> they, they 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 didn't know how to. I I can remember when um, when they went back. Uh, three of the guys who was leading them at that time, they wanted to talk to me, and and they came to me to ask me what they should do, and I told them I said, y'all need to go play football. Because I tried to stay out of it from the start, but that was their decision, wasn't my decision. Right. So I said, y'all need to go play football. And and that's what they did. I think at the end of the day, you know, when I look at what these guys are doing, what they've done with their platform, I, I think that's good. But the most important thing, 
what has to happen more than anything, they got to solicit their teammates. And I'm talking about their white teammates. You know, and they got to solicit their white teammates to stand with us. And if they don't stand with you, then you realize who they stand with. Because if you're in that huddle, you're in that dressing room, and you're fighting for the same common cause, to me, you ought to be on the same page, on, on the right side of history as far as treating people like they're supposed to be treated. If you stand for that and you can go to go to, go to war every Sunday, go to practice every day, I think that speaks volume. But we're not going to be able to do it alone as, as, as African-American. That's why I like what is transpiring uh, over the last few months in the second round of civil rights. It is such a diverse group. You know, it's black and it's white. And the other part of this whole thing, now, you look at it realistically, you got people across the world Mm -hmm. protesting for what's going on in America. It was telling you that our living room here in America is not that clean. We need to clean it up. And the only way that's going to happen is going to take all of us to do that. I think what you've accomplished um, as a player being, you know, a Super Bowl champion and being the first black quarterback to do that, but then still to be a part of an organization that has now hired Jason Wright to be the president of football operations, to hire, um, you know, different uh, backgrounds of people, but also even women now to hold major roles within the organization. Uh, What is it now about the Washington football team that seems to be kind of leading the charge and change for 2020? Well, it goes back to what I said about ownership. I think, number one, you know, you got to give – Dan Snyder some credit for, for for being able to make those moves. That I'm sure it wasn't an easy move just to find out who's going to run this team. It took him some time to find Jason Wright. You know, I've had a chance to talk to Jason a couple of times, and I can say this. He understands the Washington Redskins. Well, not the Redskins, the Washington football team. I got you, but hey, you're, you're on the ring of honor. You're, you're a Redskin ring of honor, so I understand. I get it, Doug. Here you go. go ahead. He understands the transformation that this organization has to go through. Mm-hmm. And he understands that it's not going to just happen overnight, that it be able got to have a diverse group of people, individuals that you got to bring in here and get this right. I mean, we're in the Washington, we're in Washington, we're in the nation capital. And I think we got to represent the nation capital. As we all know, that um, the African American population is real strong here. And we got to be be look at it from a standpoint. We got to do what's right to the people in the DMV, and that's D.C., Virginia, and, and Maryland area. And we know we got to have that diversity to match what this area looks like. And I think Jason understands that, and uh, he's working towards that. And I think you know we got to give uh, Dan Snyder's little kudos for going out and hiring Jason as the first black president. Like I told Jason when he got here. Look at it from a realistic standpoint. Bobby Mitchell was the first uh, black player to play here. Okay. Bobby worked here a long time. Uh, I was the first uh, black quarterback to play in the Super Bowl. I'm here and not Jason. So you got three guys that has, has broke the barrier right here in Washington. And, and you got to get that some, some kind of credit to say, you know what? We're an organization that should make diversity look the way it should look. And I think that's where we're headed. You know, week one just passed in the NFL, and you saw the way that the NFL has embraced um, listening to its players, whether it's uh, the social justice uh, statements, whether it's what they put on the field, on the back of the players' helmets. And you think about uh, where how the NFL sort of turned uh, around and are now listening, where 
think about 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20, or when you play, uh, just imagining that the NFL and the stance that it's starting to take and listening to his players, like how surprised are you? Or did you eventually think that this day would be coming? Uh, it's hard to say here and say, I, I thought this day was coming. But if we had done that 15 or 20 years ago, we'd be so far ahead at this particular time. You know, and but it's unfortunate that didn't happen, but we're here now. And right. I think we got to take out where we are now and keep going forward. You know, I watched the uh, Kansas City and Texas game, Texas game the other night. And, you know, when the players came out as a group in unity and to hear people boo, you know, kind of tell you where we are, it's kind of like they don't want us to be together to show that, hey, we all on the same page. But, but I think that's just the way it is. And, uh, you know, we got to get past it. And now I think kind of moving forward now, when you look at, I mentioned a lot of the, the black quarterbacks who have started in week one, and we think about moving forward now, you've been on the scouting side, you've seen all that, and you think about, you mentioned the new generation of athletes and quarterbacks. And that, that I mean, obviously that is your expertise playing the quarterback position. But where do you see this thing going now with so many now franchises maybe having a face, a black face? What more do you think that these young quarterbacks can do now to hopefully um, educate the minds of people on the outside who at once would always think that that position can only be played by a white man, but now eventually understanding that these are smart players too, right? It, before it's like, if you're the black quarterback, oh, he's the athlete. But yeah, now yeah. these are actually guys who know the game, can teach the game, and are, are, are really students of the game. So what more do you think does a black quarterback need to do as we continue to progress? I think what they got to do is to do what they did this weekend. Out of the 10 quarterbacks that was black that started the National Football League, eight of them won. Eight of them won. Right. I think you just got to keep on playing to the best of your ability and show that you can play. It'll take care of itself. Uh, I don't think you can stand at the podium and talk about it. You got to be on the fields and, and have something to do about it. A good example, I always think about Lamar Jackson coming out. Everybody say he's too athletic. He's going to be a wide receiver. You know what? I'm going to give credit to another black man by the name of Ozzie Newsome. Mm -hmm. who's won two Super Bowls in Baltimore. Uh, I'm going to give uh, credit to John Harbaugh, the head coach. Um, I'm going to give uh, to, to the, uh, I can't think of his name, offense coordinator, who who got together and said, you know what, we're going to take this kid. And they put a plan together. And Lamar Jackson was MVP of the National Football League, a kid that couldn't play quarterback, remind you now, who led the league in, in TD passes with 36. Right. And I think in the season with three. This is his week. So could he play quarterback or he just an athlete? Yeah, I think he's more than an athlete now. He he's a he's a playmaker and more guys that we'll see coming up in the league just like him. But on the backs of what guys such as yourself um, have been able to do and, and really be an influence. And for me, when I think of Super Bowl champion, black quarterback, I'm telling you, uh, you are the name that everyone always remember, everyone always knows. And I feel still feel like you don't get the credit that you still deserve, man. But um, I got to tell you, man, this has been a pleasure for me, Doug, for everybody here at SiriusXM. Uh, I want to thank you, and uh, I can't wait to catch up with you uh, soon, man. Well, thanks for having me, and appreciate it, man. Let's just keep going forward and get this country right. <laughs> Sounds good. I appreciate it. That was right. Doug Williams, Super Bowl-winning quarterback for the Washington football team. 
for myself, Kirk Morrison, for Jason Jackson. This has been Forward Progress. Tune in next week. We got another treat for you. Warren Moon, another black quarterback in the National Football League. Can't wait to get his uh, thoughts on where the league is at and, and in the progress in the black community and uh, our social justice issues and kind of get his story as well. Jay Harris of ESPN, he'll also join us as well. Can't wait. Thank you for listening. This has been Forward Progress on Sirius XM. 